Good evening. You are listening to Marooned in the Deepest Darkness of the Ultimate Nightmare Abyss. With Zero HP Lovecraft. This is episode three, a difficult conversation about race. It's time for a difficult conversation about race in America. We used to hear this a lot. It was a buzz phrase of the late Obama era and of the early Trump years. Y'all ain't ready for that conversation. You remember this. I think this conversation has come and gone. I think we had it at gunpoint in 2020, in the summer of George. The summer of George! But that never was a conversation, was it? It was only ever a lecture, a kind of nagging, a kind of scolding, based on no reality at all, only on hysterical, and predominantly female, delusions. The other side of the conversation, our side, the white man's side, that side never gets published or broadcast anywhere in so-called respectable outlets. Truth is that half of the conversation is illegal. That conversation will get you fired. We live in a country which is systematically racist against black people, but also black people have a sacred name that if any white man says it even once, he gets fired and black people have a license to beat him. That's not written into the law. It's not de jure, but it is de facto. And this is one of the many pitfalls of a conversation about race. And I think there's no value in trying to have this conversation with your friends or your co-workers, or even your family, unless you know they are already sympathetic. The way we win isn't by some grassroots evangelical mission to the man on the street. We accomplish nothing by sending racist witnesses door to door with a copy of the bell curve. The way we win this argument is by broadcasting these truths with authority and power from the biggest megaphones we can get a hold of. That's the only way people recognize truth in the mass media regime. And the truth is, the first time they hear it, they will resist, or get angry, or deny it. But then one day, they see something in their own lives that they can't make sense of any other way. So that's when they find themselves, and honestly, it's a very painful moment for most people, because they think it's evil to be racially aware. So we have to be sensitive to the intellectual and the spiritual journey that each person takes when they come to us. Debating is fruitless. No one is ever convinced by watching debates. When you watch a debate between two people, you always walk away convinced that your champion won and the other team lost. It galvanizes your enemies against you and it doesn't win people over. The goal is a kind of seduction. It's to tell a story. A story that most people won't want to hear but which is darkly appealing, and then let them come to you. And the beautiful thing about this process of seduction is that it's never a secret. In fact, it may be more successful if we are open about it, if we are audacious. So I will give you an overview of the dialogue tree of every conversation you'll ever have about race. These talking points are predictable, entrenched, and they're almost automatic. The reason I'll explain this 
is that it's a conversation many people have within themselves when they wrestle with these topics. It's quite remarkable to me, in fact, because I don't think this is something anyone teaches to anyone else. It seems to be an emergent pattern in our collective consciousness, an accidental byproduct of our propaganda machine. If you ever talk to a shitlib about race, they will say the following five things, probably, in this exact order. They'll say race isn't real. Then they'll say, okay, even if it is real, so what? And they'll say, why do you know all this racist pseudoscience? Don't you know that's been debunked? What kind of pathetic person derives their self-worth from these narratives of racial superiority? Finally, they'll say, you're a racist piece of shit. Anger is the last step. Because that's the main emotion you feel when you're in a state of cognitive dissonance. If you think about race and you get to the end of the conversation, then you start at the beginning again next time. Because if you have this conversation internally, or some version of it, really, you're arguing with a version of society itself, one which you've absorbed and taken upon yourself. And that image is something that controls you, not always in a bad way, but always in a way that will cause you to align with the herd. You aren't operating under your own consciousness, then. You're operating under a herd consciousness. And this conversation is as linear as any old video game. After level 5, the conversation is over. So we will address each one of these waypoints in turn, beginning with the idea that race exists only as a social construct. This is a ludicrous statement, an insane lie, so brazen and so blatant that it can be hard to know where to begin. We should not have to waste our time with this, but it's so pervasive and so common that it must be our first step. Whiteness, they will say, is a performance. It's a culture, but not a biological reality, almost as if it's an evil spirit that is manifest in certain people which has no correlation to reality, except insofar as we need to completely destroy it. It is ironic that those who rule over us pretend to be the party of science. They are not scientific, not in the least. Race exists as a biological phenomenon, as a chemical phenomenon, as a physical phenomenon. It is much more than words and ideology. But then even if it's real, so what? In the second part of the conversation, we must establish the precise contours of some key differences. If our hypothetical interlocutor ever admits race is real, the next step is to claim that it doesn't matter, that there are no possible conclusions to be drawn from this fact. Next, they will accuse you of caring too much about the topic. Why do you know this? They'll say you have evil motives. They will say that you are personally so deficient that you rely upon notions of racial supremacy or group identity in order to feel better about yourself. They will attack your self-esteem. Why do you want to feel better than other people? It's sad to have to derive your self-worth from things other people have done. You have to be mentally strong and sure of yourself to withstand this. Many people will crumble under the social pressure of the mainstream because it's very taxing to be the object of hatred. Many people are too humble, and they will fall into confusion and introspection, even at the shallowest accusations of selfishness, or hatred, or mediocrity. Having any unsanctioned knowledge about race 
is viewed as suspicious. Because none of this is taught in school. None of it is talked about on TV. And if it ever comes up in an academic or political setting, you are required to condemn it. To say that these are outdated or antiquated ideas which have been debunked. So we must be very certain of our understanding. We don't want to look down on people. We don't need racial narratives to feel superior. But in America, in fact, every race except whites is encouraged to partake of racial pride. We are told that whites are uniquely evil, that it's appropriate for blacks and Asians and Indians to feel racial pride, but not whites, because whites are guilty for slavery and so on. We are supposed to pretend that conquest and imperialism are unique to whites, when in fact people of every race have engaged in these things. Whites are demonized for it, not because we have done it, but because we have been the best at it, because our empires have covered more of the world than any other race, because we have conquered Asia, Africa, America, and Australia. Why shouldn't we take pride in that? I am proud of my brother, of my father, of my grandfather, of my cousin and my uncle. A race is an extended family. Why shouldn't I feel proud of my race? The greatest and most exceptional members of a race are drawn up from the mass of it. I am proud to be part of that heritage from which the greatest writers, philosophers, scientists, and explorers have sprung. I am proud to be part of that fundament. On the topic of slavery, most of us know that blacks sold their own co-ethnics to white slavers in Africa. Slavery today is still very much alive and practiced in Africa and Asia by Arabs and Africans with more a European man in sight. But we're supposed to believe the whites bear all of the guilt for this too. Whites are the most accepting of other races, the least racially prejudiced. And this is why we put up with these kinds of racial abuses. Tell a white man that whites are the worst race and see how he reacts. Then tell a black man that blacks are the worst race. Which one of these activities will get you punched in the face? The finding that whites are the least racially prejudiced is robust in social science. When people of different races are surveyed, whites have better things to say about blacks and Mexicans and Asians than any of those races have to say about them or about each other. When you point out the whites have no special monopoly on slavery or conquest, that's called whataboutism. They will tell you that other races practicing slavery does not excuse whites, does not alleviate their guilt, that your sins do not forgive my sins, and we agree. The fact that whites have owned slaves does not excuse Africans for owning slaves. Moreover, and if we take a historical perspective, whites are uniquely benevolent, albeit naive and idealistic, when it comes to the institution of slavery. But we lower ourselves by falling into this frame of who did what, because if we say, you did it too, we have tacitly accepted the idea that whites have something to atone for. As if being descended from warriors and kings somehow places a debt or a burden upon us. In fact, it's even worse than that. If we apologize for the victories of our co-ethnics, we become spiritually castrated. Are we supposed to believe it's wicked to win a war, bad to explore new territories? 
evil to fight for our own interests? Conquest is glorious. Exploration is courageous. The wicked thing would be to act against our own interests. To fight for ourselves is noble. In truth, there may be some people who are so ineffective at managing their own affairs that trusting them with autonomy becomes a cruelty. That's all slavery is. It's when one person is wholly subordinate to another. We accept it as altruistic, for example, in the case of a man who cares for his brother with Down's syndrome. A person with Down's syndrome is better off as a slave, in the most literal sense, and few would dispute this. And there are many people who are not retarded in the clinical sense, who nevertheless would benefit from less autonomy. Government programs, welfare, food stamps, Medicare, all of it, it's all slavery. It's just distributed slavery, headless slavery. Slavery to a committee rather than an individual. If you are dependent upon the state, you are not a free person. If you cannot fully care for yourself, you are a slave. The only difference between dependency and slavery is that one word is polite and one is rude. If someone else pays for you to exist, they own you. The greater the dependency, the lesser the freedom. And what we see is that most people don't even mind being slaves in this sense. Many of them welcome it because autonomy is more of a burden than a blessing. And the average person doesn't really want it, but he thinks he does. You give up some freedom to exist in a community, to exist in a society. You give up much more when you say, society ought to provide for me. And the cries we see all the time, especially from women, but also quite tellingly, I think, by so many blacks, when they demand more government programs. This is such a common cry, it's become a cliche. More money for them programs. What they are calling out for is a master. They want a master. They want to be slaves. And I think the really crazy thing is that we condemn them for it. When really we should recognize that many, maybe even the majority of people need to exist in a hierarchy. Need someone above them to tell them where they fit in the world. We think know your place is some kind of derogatory remark, but really it's very good to know your place, to know that you have a place, to know where you stand in relation to the world. The impetus to invent your place in the world is a noble calling, but it's also a perilous one. And in a way, it's tyrannical to force it on everyone, no matter how ill-suited they may be to the task. But we will move on for now because I have promised you racist pseudoscience. Thank you.
study of genetics has vindicated all of our supposedly naive intuitions about race. In a way, it's absurd that we must go to these lengths to establish what any fool can see with his own eyes. Race is real, and it's so much deeper than skin color. For any two races, there may be hundreds of morphological differences. Pigment is only the most obvious. Different races have different textures of hair, different bone structures, different palates and tongues, which are one factor that shapes the languages of different peoples. Blacks may have different blood cells. Asians have different consistency to their earwax. And this is the one that's really going to kill you. There are differences in the way our brains develop and in our neurochemistry that are highly determined by race. Evolution does not stop at the neck. But again, do you need science to tell you different races think differently? Look at some photos of African or Indian albinos. They have white skin. Do they look ethnically white to you? Of course not, because race is so much more than skin deep. It's bone deep, and brain deep, and blood deep. You can send skin cells from the inside of your cheek to 23andMe and get back a detailed breakdown of the provenance of your DNA. That should tell you everything you need to deduce that race is not a social construct or an illusion of melanin. And the next argument you'll hear is that what 23andMe actually shows is that there is no white race. There's only Germans, and English, and Swedes, and so on. But this entire line of thinking is bullshit too. The existence of high resolution lineage doesn't mean the low resolution picture is false. Now let's talk about how we build the high resolution picture. It hinges on a mathematical technique called principal component analysis, which is a method for reducing a data set of high dimension to a data set of low dimension. For those with a background in linear algebra, it is a way of computing categories based on distance. If we imagine your DNA as a vector, then it is a point in a very high dimensional space. We can chart the DNA of many different people in this space, and it begins to look like a scatter plot. Probably you remember doing something like this in school. What we can then do is draw new vectors through the data and try to find the line of best fit. In a very disparate set of points, one line won't fit very well. So then we compute a second line of best fit, with the added constraint that it should also be as different from the first line as we can possibly make it. Ideally, these vectors would be what we call orthogonal, which means that neither can be computed as a linear combination of the other, which means that they point in different directions, and that if you move in the direction of the first, you have not moved in the direction of the second at all. If you are moving east, and you are in a flat 2D plane, you are not moving north or south. North is orthogonal to east, as long as we are talking about Euclidean geometry. We can keep repeating this process, and draw as many of these orthogonal lines of best fit as we want. And these are called the principal components. And what they do is, they provide us with a strictly numerical method of categorizing data. The set of principal components is called a basis, and each vector in the basis is one category. And now we can measure how much any particular data point belongs to each category by expressing it as a linear combination of basis vectors. 
In other words, we can measure the degree to which a person belonged in each category. You know, for example, you share half your DNA with each of your parents, and also half of your DNA with each of your siblings, though not the same half, of course. If we ran a principal component analysis on just your family, and we chose a dimensionality of two, then your mother and your father would be the two principals, and you and any siblings you have would be somewhere between them. That's all it is. It's a way of recognizing that a group of people are more genetically similar to each other than they are to people of another category or race. Now there's a little asterisk attached to that, and it's called Lewontin's fallacy, and we'll get there in a moment. But so what if we apply principal component analysis to humans of different races? Can you guess what we find? It depends on what dimensionality we choose. If we choose to collapse the human genome into two categories, then it finds exactly two races, the Eurasian and the Africanid. In other words, all the people of the world, Anglos, Italians, Swedes, Indians, Han Chinese, Persians, and so-called Native Americans, and even Aboriginal Australians are all in one category, and Africans are in the other. That is how dissimilar we are. If we add a third category, the Eurasian splits into Caucasian and Asiatic. What we might call East Asians are the third most genetically distinct group. As we go on down the line, Amerindians split off of Asiatic, and then Africanids split into East and West, and on it goes. Prior to the late 20th century, all racial classification relied upon morphology rather than genetics. At lower dimensionality, all the way up to eight, what we find is the genetics of humans conform exactly to classical taxonomies of race. But using technology, using science, I fucking love science, it is possible to expand our study of racial taxonomy much higher, into the hundreds if we so desire. We can become hyper-racist. We can become experts, connoisseurs of racism. High-quality racism is extraordinarily hard work. You have to have working recall of a minimum of eight or 9,000 distinct races living and extinct and run extensive simulations just to model the disgusting attributes of the most easily conceivable two- and three-way crosses. The modern genetic, scientific understanding of race is consanguineous with older approaches which were based purely on external observations. Race is real. It's not an outdated notion. It's an ancient notion that has been totally upheld by cutting-edge science and mathematics. So maybe this will convince you that our concept of race is grounded in something much deeper than skin color and social construction. And in many ways, the reality of race is a sideshow to the bigger question, which is what to do about it. But there is another line of argument or reasoning that can be used to reject modern genetic science. It's very hard to claim that genetic science is wrong, but it's relatively easy to claim that the concept of categories is flawed. Most people who do this are guilty of special pleading, but let's humor them. The claim is that, for example, many people exist who are of mixed race. If a black and a white person have a child together, what race is the child? I may be black, I may got some black in me, dumbing me down, but I got the white mind in me. I got a physical black body playing basketball, but I got the white in me. 
The fallback argument for race isn't real is that there are cases which straddle the categories, people who cannot be cleanly categorized as one race or another. We can imagine a series of mixed-race people who occupy a range of admixture, such that if you had them all stand in a line from whitest to blackest, it would be impossible to determine where exactly one race ended and another began. In the real world, if we look at border regions where different ethnic groups live in close proximity, we do see enough crossbreeding that these kinds of gradients exist. If we take a few steps back, the actual question is, does the existence of continuity invalidate the possibility of discretization? We can ask this question in any domain, and the answer is always no. Every category imaginable has edge cases, but we are still able to discern useful and meaningful distinctions between them. In the visible spectrum, red light has a wavelength of 650 nanometers, yellow light 580, and orange light 600. But we know that light can exist at any wavelength between these two seemingly arbitrary markers. Does the possibility of orange mean that red and yellow don't exist? We can easily become mired in a pedantic and nuanced and pointless conversation here about the nature of existence. Our hypothetical race sophist will of course claim that these wavelengths are arbitrary and socially constructed, but if you stab them with a knife, their blood won't be orange or purple. Then again, lizards bleed green. I'm not being flippant about this. Practical and functional considerations ultimately win out over ivory tower self-sucking. We can come up with borderline cases for any category, but in any situation where we need to take effective actions in our environment, we have no choice but to make judgments using the cognitive tools at our disposal. We can be aware that those tools have limitations without swearing off tool use altogether. A category is a measure of similarity between disparate things. A good definition of a category clarifies our understanding because it lets us group similar things together and reason about them as a group. Edge cases don't invalidate the category, and often they refine it. Now we can throw this into even sharper relief when we consider that there are many different species of animals in nature which we recognize as distinct. And so far as I know, even the most brazen anti-racialist would not claim that the concept of species is an arbitrary distinction. That, for example, an eagle is the same as a sparrow. But we can make the distinction more difficult when we look at species that are closer to each other. Wolves and coyotes and domestic dogs are all quite similar. In fact, they're so similar that they can interbreed with each other and produce fertile offspring. But we recognize a difference there, and we don't even need genetic science to do it. The morphology of these animals is sufficient. But when we actually look at the genetic data from different varieties of canids, we find that coyotes and North American gray wolves are more genetically similar to each other than a Chinese person is to a sub-Saharan African. And I think this is also true if we compare their morphology. The fact is, if we applied the same scientific approaches that we use for categorizing other animals that we use for humans, then we would recognize that the different races of men are in fact different species. There's no scientific reason 
that we call humans races and animals species. It's the intentional blurring of these topics, which is the real socially constructed illusion that we ought to dispel. And this brings us to Rwandan's fallacy. This is a famous and maybe counterintuitive thing, which many anti-racialists believe discredits the idea of using genetics to defend our instinctive racial categories. Lewontin said the genetic variance within a race on average exceeds the genetic variance between races. Moreover, he said race is a meaningless distinction in some ways because of this. And the part about variance is true, but there are genetic markers which reliably and perfectly correlate with race, despite variance. The argument instantly falls apart when we transpose it to the domain of sex. There's more genetic variation amongst all women than there are between, say, a brother and sister. But we don't claim on that basis that biological sex doesn't exist. Even among the most recent insanities and abuses of gender ideology, no one would go that far. They will say your gender identity can be different to your birth sex. They don't talk about genetics at all. These people would not refer to your genetic sex, because as with race, they will claim that the tiny minority of border cases, people born with congenital androgen insensitivity, chromosomal disorders, or birth defects of the genitalia, invalidate the concept of biological sex. At its core, anti-racialist and gender ideology have the same fallacy in common, though for strictly pragmatic reasons, they arrive at opposite conclusions about the possibility of being transracial versus being transsexual. I believe that these people are not biologically capable of being reasoned with. Draw your own conclusions about that. Okay, but once again, so what? So race is real. What does that imply? Why do you care about this so much? I'll answer that in the following segment. But first, I want to talk about a related question, which is, does the reality of racial differences justify treating people differently, or like inferiors? But I'm not going to answer that question as I have formulated it here, because it is a loaded question. It contains implicit moral assumptions which I believe are incorrect. The first assumption is that to treat someone like an inferior is to treat them badly. The second assumption is that everyone is equal not just in terms of their spiritual worth, but also in terms of their capacity for responsibility and autonomy. Both of these assumptions are flawed. We do not treat our inferiors badly as a matter of course. There are many senses in which children are inferior to adults. They are smaller, weaker, credulous to the point of naivety, so ignorant that it becomes a catastrophic liability. And yet, we treat children better than we treat adults in most cases. I was always taught to be gracious to people who were less fortunate than me, to be courteous even to people over whom I had an obvious advantage. And I think you were probably taught this also. So to treat someone like an inferior often means to treat them very well. So given this understanding, the answer is yes. There are many cases where biologically determined differences may justify treating people like inferiors, which is to say, with a sense of duty and obligation to care for them. And allowing people to have autonomy when they can't handle it is a form of abuse 
not only to them, but to everyone around them. This is an anti-egalitarian doctrine. What I'm telling you is we need to be realistic about what we can expect from people, and we need to treat them appropriately based on those expectations. William Blake wrote that one law for the lion and the ox is oppression. Even most leftists understand this. They like to point out that a law which makes it illegal to sleep under bridges only affects the homeless, but it does nothing to govern the well-off. Actually, they'll say punish because they believe that law and order are punishments. But in fact, these are suddenly different statements, and they have exactly contradictory implications, though they have a family resemblance. The point is that there can't be a single universal set of rules that is equally fair to everyone, because everyone has different circumstances, and the law ought to take that into account. So however much we are overestimating the homogeneity of our population, our laws are probably unfair in roughly the same measure. It is incumbent upon us, it is imperative, if we have any hope or any desire for justice, that we develop an accurate understanding of race and of racial differences. There can be no justice without truth, and there can be no truth without honesty, and honesty is often unpleasant. I think I have reasonably established that biological race is an ontologically valid concept, and also a socially and scientifically useful concept. Of course, there will always be people who refuse to acknowledge such teachings. These people are easy to recognize. They will demand to see your sources, as if they would read them in any case, and then they will, probably without even bothering to do a perfunctory Google, tell you that the sources you are citing have been discredited or debunked. It's pretty rare to even see a counter source in such cases. Indeed, one is not necessary. The language of debunked or discredited is neither a rational nor an analytical statement. It is a statement of power, which is to say it is a statement made in the language that power uses when it addresses itself to truth. The sovereign is he who determines the null hypothesis. A majority of reasonable, decent people will go along with any atrocity, no matter how heinous, if going along with it is the default option. Generally, the person saying racial science is debunked does not hold any power himself. Thus, it is an appeal to authority. And authority, which is to say scientific institutions, have declared that race isn't real, and that there are no meaningful distinctions 
there are conclusions to be drawn from the study of racial differences, outside of certain very narrow medical applications, and even those tend to be looked on with suspicion. We have many reasons to be suspicious of science, not as a practice of dispassionate investigation into the nature of the natural world, but as a human, all too human, institution which is ultimately composed of people, paid for by governments and other bureaucratic bodies, all of whom are subject to politics and who have political agendas. Everyone knows that if the tobacco industry funds a study on smoking, it's going to find that tobacco doesn't cause cancer. If Coca-Cola pays for a study about sugar consumption, they will find that it has a very weak effect on obesity, or none at all. No one, not anyone, anywhere, has trouble reaching this conclusion, that having a financial stake in the outcome of a study can cause scientists to manipulate their findings. Even the New York Times has published articles explaining this history. A nonprofit organization called the Sugar Research Foundation bribed Harvard researchers. Nestle paid for research to obfuscate the link between sugar consumption and heart disease. Even if you are a die-hard Ray Peak fan, and you think it's important to eat a pint of ice cream every night before bed, you have to admit that the incentive drove the outcome. I am sure none of my friends have trouble with this. I don't demand consistency of thought from anyone. It's an impossible request, like asking you to lasso the moon, walk on water. We are men, not gods, but ask yourself if you believe a study funded by a corporation is shaped by that corporation's incentives, then why don't you believe a study funded by the government is shaped by that government's incentives? Would you believe a study funded by the Chinese government that says forcing Uyghurs to live in camps and intermarry with Chinese makes them happier and increases their subjective well-being? Would you believe a study funded by the North Korean government that found that having a picture of Kim Jong-il in your house is associated with lower mortality across all causes. Well, okay, that's a tricky one. A self-fulfilling prophecy, maybe. But you have to admit it raises an eyebrow. There are many reasons for the U.S. government, or for academic institutions, to demand race denialism. Some are financial, but most are ideological. And this is another point of contention we have with the lips. In general, they will argue that behind every supposedly ideological reason, is a financial incentive. They not, may not believe this, but this is what they will say. That people are immoral because of greed. The greed is the only sin which causes people to act against morality. Greed or, if you are a man, an intrinsic desire to hurt women. Rape isn't about sex, remember, it's about power. People really think this. How fucking stupid do you have to be to believe that? Men aren't horny, they just want to hurt women. This 75 IQ belief is brought to you by the same people who think ideology always boils down to money, as if no one has any other value or purpose than to amass gold and spend it on hideous postmodern anti-art, as if no one ever died or killed for glory, for honor, for love. Anyone who says that shows how small his soul is. Alright, but enough stalling. I promised you a difficult conversation about race. We haven't had it yet. We haven't got to the difficult part. 
And the difficult part really is difficult. And we make light of it, and we joke about it. Not only because it's easier to joke, but because sometimes there are certain topics which are too sensitive not to joke about them. Racial differences are real, and the truth is, there are only two ways to respond to this world. The first way, the way we have chosen since the civil rights movement, is to kill each other over them. The other way, the good way, is to learn to laugh about them. We can joke about it, or kill about it. That's it. That's the choice. I prefer to laugh about it, if that wasn't clear. But once we acknowledge that the races of men have real, biological differences, then it is only natural to wonder about the nature of those differences. And you all already know what some of those differences are. And I'm going to state them plainly. But first, I'm going to head off one more objection to this line of thinking, which is to answer the question, why do you care? This is always the last resort of the anti-racist. If you best them with knowledge, they will say, why do you care about this so much? Why do you know this? Do you really just need to feel superior to other people? Do you hate people of other races? Is that why you know? These questions are asked in bad faith, but I will answer them in good faith so that you know, so that you know for yourself, whites and blacks, different. Why do we care? And the answer is, we never wanted to care. We never wanted to learn about racial differences. The overwhelming majority of whites were quite happy with the ideology of colorblindness, despite its contradictions. Those of us who learned about racial science did so because we were fed an absolutely bullshit story that all disparity between black and white were caused by our innate wickedness. It was our original sin of white privilege, of systemic racism, an insidious type of racism that is so invisible, so pervasive, so total, that all white people, no matter what they do, are born with an irredeemable blood debt to all black people for all eternity. Some may say I'm being hyperbolic, but be honest. Is there any amount of reparations that would ever be enough, any amount of affirmative action, any world where white liberals and blacks say, okay, that's enough, we're square now? The answer is no. We cannot imagine such a world. It isn't even a theoretical possibility. The blood debt is eternal if you accept its premises, which we don't. And the reason we don't accept them is that we know a better story, a truer story, one which is entirely backed up by statistics and even by that cursed name, science. We care because there are multiple levels where the narrative of white guilt for black tragedy is wrong. It assumes that all people are equal, not just in terms of their moral worth, but in terms of their abilities and their proclivities, and that if one racial group outperforms another, that's exclusively due to irrational prejudice. The alternative story, the real story, hurts people's feelings. It's mean. It's offensive. And in the U.S. especially, we've been taught our whole lives that there is nothing, nothing more evil than racism, a word with two different meanings, depending on the audience and the context. You know these two meanings. You know about the Mott and Bailey, that classic which Scott Alexander popularized, the Mott with its mostly unobjectionable definition that everyone agrees is bad, and the Bailey with its expansive definition that is used to attack. The Bailey is that all racial disparities are due to invisible prejudice. 
the mot, is that it's generally an error to judge someone solely by their race when other information is available. I think most of you learned this in 2014, but I'm trying to ground you in the basics just in case. And know what I said, it's an error to judge someone by their race when other information is available. This is how all heuristics and stereotypes work. The standard disclaimer slash mental model is this. We know that men are taller than women. We know that not all men are taller than all women. But on average, men are taller. If we know nothing at all about two arbitrary people, except that one is a man and one is a woman, then the safest bet is that the man is taller. That's how statistical averages work. So it's not an error at all to appraise people using one or two superficial details about them. It's only an error to keep hodling that opinion when you receive contrary information. But the anti-racist epistemic model, really the leftist model in general, says that it's not morally permissible to use information like sex or race to make predictions about someone. This demand is both impossible and insane, and it drives you insane precisely because it's impossible. It makes it so that every time you fail to do the impossible thing, you feel morally deficient. And then one way of coping with the guilt you feel is to double down, to try to atone for it. But you can be free of this if you just let go of the false moral premise. One more analogy from physics. It is impossible to model the behavior of a single particle in a thermodynamic system. But it's very possible, if we know the laws of thermodynamics, to model the behavior of the system as a whole. That is, the behavior of all the particles. And knowledge of racial differences is exactly like this. It's very rare, especially in America, to meet anyone who is willing to openly and unapologetically claim to be a racist. As a result, most people have no idea how racists actually think. And they imagine that racism is a kind of blind prejudice, when in fact, it can be a highly informed kind of prejudice, and a wholly justified one. Knowing things about crime statistics and IQ research does not stop me or anyone else from being civil to, or cooperating with, or even esteeming a person of another race. In fact, as corny as the old Dems are the real racists line is, there is a kernel of truth to it. Knowledge of, and acknowledgement of, racial differences is a better basis for coexistence than any program of egalitarianism or race denialism. But I would never tell you that Dems are the real racists. Don't let anyone tell you that. We are the real racists. Because we're the best racists. And if there's a future for America as America, it's going to be what Jungians call integrating our shadow. In some ways, the woke are closer to this than the mainstream. When they tell you that colorblind racism is de facto white supremacy, they are correct. Just not for the right reasons. Now as a sort of tangent, but also something very relevant to the topic of American colorblind racialism. I want to play for you a clip from Bronze Age Pervert on the topic of American Hellenism, the idea of the cultural melting pot, which I think is very insightful. The American idea, which indeed is a kind of universalism, but not how they imagine it. The people who embrace this in America, this universalism, they are called white people now. And now, after they, having abandoned their own ethnic prejudices and origins, 
and their ethnic rivalries against other ethnic groups. They didn't bring it over to the United States. This was the bargain, the American bargain of assimilation, the so-called American Hellenism, American civil religion. After they've given that up to join America, the rug is pulled out in our time, and they are said to be something made up, and a new ideology is introduced. They're said to be not real. White people are not real, then they don't have a legitimate uh, group being. Uh, and a, this new ideology is uh, introduced, that of worshipping the ethno-narcissism of marginal communities and of validation and approval by central authorities of people's parochial ethnic chauvinism and bigotries. But the white American, which is to say the founding American who embraced the original American idea, they are seen then as uniquely outsiders to this, as opponents to this, as oppressors of so-called POC, which of course includes the gays and the others. So, you know, it's the white men who get in the way of the self-actualization and authenticity of Bill Crystal. There are two very important differences that we see between blacks and whites when we're speaking of groups. And again, any individual white may be quite stupid, and any individual black may be quite smart. But on average, we find a difference in IQ of about 16 points. One standard deviation. That's the first difference. Much like with the reality of biological race, there are many common criticisms of IQ, which we will explore in a moment. But the second very important difference between blacks and whites is their tendency towards violence. One example is the meme statistic which is released by the FBI most years, a breakdown of homicides by race. In 2020, blacks comprised 56.5% of known murder offenders, a per capita rate more than eight times worse than that of the non-white population, whites, Hispanics, Asians, etc., lumped together. As with IQ, there are many popular ways of coping with this fact in order to dodge the possibility of racism, and we'll get into those too. IQ research isn't perfect. There are many things that it does not measure. I can't remember how he phrased it, but Bap once said that IQ is a measure of domestication. That the higher your IQ is, the more docile and compliant you become. I don't think that's quite the whole story, but even if it's wrong, it's wrong in an interesting way. What IQ does not measure, undoubtedly, is the strength of a man's will, the fire in his belly, his tenacity, his courage, his valor. What it does measure is his ability to recognize and extrapolate patterns. There is, of course, much more to the human heart and soul than this. But IQ correlates strongly with income, correlates weakly with height, correlates a little more strongly with facial attractiveness, and on and on. That alone should tell you it measures something real. As with studies of the biological reality of race, you will always hear that IQ is discredited or debunked. You will hear theories of multiple intelligence, many other things of this nature. IQ is not destiny. No one anywhere thinks that, but it's highly predictive of some important things. It's the most robust and replicable scientific tool in the discipline of human metrics. But people object to it very strongly, even very smart people, in many cases, 
not because it's so wrong, in my opinion, but because it's fundamentally uncomfortable to assign an objective measure of intelligence. I'm very partial to the theories of Robin Hanson, who believes that humans instinctively prefer ambiguity about rank and social situations, because it gives us more room to maneuver politically. Almost everyone likes to think of himself as smart, and often, especially the people who tell you they aren't very smart, they're putting one over on themselves and trying to fool others too by pretending it's not important or downplaying it. Most of the time when a man says, I'm an idiot, he's telling you that he thinks he's very smart indeed. And a lot of people, I'll say especially people who are secular, atheist not in the fedora sense, but just in the default sense, in the sense that our culture's default religious belief is a kind of atheism informed by Christianity, they really do believe the most essential measure of human worth is intelligence. This is especially important when you don't believe in a soul or salvation. They like to say that Jesus was an egalitarian, that he said there is neither man nor woman, slave nor free man in Christ. But that's the part they always leave out, isn't it? In Christ, not on earth. On earth we're all quite human, all too human. How can you believe in Christian equality without Christ? It's nonsensical. It's a perversion. You hear people say intelligent life has an intrinsically higher value. Intelligent life. This is part of that secular perversion. That it can find no way to value life except intelligence. That's why you can't measure IQ. Because if you measure it, you find what everyone already knows. That some people just aren't that bright. And then what? For people who say IQ is imperfect and therefore useless, I like to do a little thought experiment. Suppose that we had a measure which was perfect, which exactly and accurately captured all the capacities of a person. How smart, how strong, how moral. Would you be okay with that? With a perfect estimate of your worth, boiled down to a single number? That you can compare against everyone else and see how you ranked? I claim that most anyone who isn't okay with IQ will also not bite this bullet. Because that's not their real objection. It's not that IQ is imperfect. It's a fundamental discomfort with quantifying human worth. It's that IQ is hitting far too close to home. It's because there's always someone better than you at everything. And you know that. But it hurts, doesn't it, to rub your face in it. A positive self-image is very valuable. IQ removes much of that ambiguity. It takes away your room to maneuver. It takes away your room to self-deceive. It punctures certain valuable illusions that you have about yourself, about your family maybe, or your friends, or God forbid, your race. And it's a funny old thing, because even most people who know about this, a lot of the time, they're understandably very concerned with appearing racist, even to themselves. So they make little bargains, bargains with themselves, bargains with the world. Northeast Asians have higher average IQ than whites, that's what the research says. As do Ashkenazi Jews. See, I'm not racist, they say. Nigerians are better runners. These kinds of things. This isn't about white supremacy. And it's not. It really isn't. But what it means is that colorblind racism is always going to favor whites, in a sense, over blacks. At least if we think in terms of income or scientific accomplishment. That's not fair, but it's true. To some leftists, to many of them even, this inherent 
biological disparity. Again, not an individual disparity. There are smart blacks, and boy, oh boy, are there a lot of dumb whites. But this inherent group disparity, to some, justifies burning down the world and implementing permanent wealth transfers, communism, in order to make everyone the same. That's it. That's the only answer leftists can come up with. But most of them have never wrestled with the difficult moral questions that inherit inequality raises. They are simpletons who only have one tool in their philosophical toolbox, which they clumsily apply to all situations. Most of them simply deny the obvious. They say it's down to discrimination or historic injustice. Bullshit! The second richest racial demographic in the USA is Indians. The third is Taiwanese. Who's the first? Ah, that is an exercise for the reader. How is it possible that these swarthy POCs have overcome the crushing oppression of systemic racism in America? The answer is the left has no good answer. That's why they invented the word BIPOC, because person of color made the contradictions in their mental model too apparent. The leftists, who are brave enough to face the truth about race, always decide that it doesn't change anything about their utopian vision, and that if anything, it just means they have to double down on their faith, believe even harder. This is the response of a man who builds his life around a false faith. The other big difference between blacks and whites is violence. Blacks commit more homicides, more rapes, more violent assaults, more thefts. There are several common dodges here. The first is that, in absolute numbers, whites commit more murders, and that's because there are almost six times as many whites as blacks. But if we look at per capita, the number of murders the average black person commits is much, much higher. That's what the 13 to 56 statistic means. And if we really drill down even deeper, of course, we notice that almost all the homicides are committed by men, both white and black. So then there's this kind of interesting bit of sophistry that, by the logic of the argument, that establishes some kind of spiritual superiority of women over men. But as Camille Paglia said, there's no female Mozart for the same reason there's no female Jack the Ripper. But there's also no black Mozart, and there are many, many black Jack the Rivers. So there's an argument here about variance and capacity for excellence, but this is not a talk about misogyny. This is a talk about racism. The real argument, the main argument, is that blacks do more violence because of poverty. That's always their main deflection. Well, you'd commit more crimes too if you were poor and struggling to feed your family. That's what they say. This is understandable, but wrong. We have lots of data from social science to show that it's wrong. Black neighborhoods have higher gun homicide rates than white neighborhoods of the same socioeconomic status level. Again, see the transcript for a source. They also tell you that poverty lowers IQ, and the blacks live in poverty, etc. But the famous Minnesota Transracial Adoption Study found that being raised by white parents did not have any effect on the IQ gap. If we look at numbers published by the College Board, we see that IQ gaps between whites and blacks persist at every income decile. Everywhere these numbers are published, you always see these disclaimers. What this shows is that we have to do more than just alleviate black poverty. 
There are many possible explanations, but this or that environmental factor is most likely. They try to blame it on lead poisoning, on the legacy of slavery. Increasingly, they grasp at ever more ephemeral possibilities, totally unfalsifiable, because the goal isn't to know the truth. It's to literally believe anything except that there are innate genetic differences between racial groups. They'll say IQ tests are culturally loaded and point to old tests that used to ask questions about voting or something like this. But modern IQ tests contain no cultural baggage of any kind. They're entirely about shapes and lines and colors. Some free test you take online tells you nothing. You need to look at professionally administered tests and see how they are structured. IQ denialists never even bother. They don't care. They just find the first hit on Google with the magic word debunked, and that's good enough. And this is not a dishonest impulse. It's actually, in some ways, a very moral impulse, a laudable impulse. But it's also wrong. And believing a harmful lie for a good reason doesn't make it any less harmful. In fact, it compounds the harm. The harm, in all sincerity, to both black and white people. Because you can't hope to make just laws. You can't hope to make just decisions about race if you can't start by being honest about it. There's no justice without truth. There's no truth without honesty. It's not possible. We don't believe these things out of malice or resentment. We believe them because they are true. And because we want to believe true things, not things which suit our injured pride, as many liberals will accuse us of. We circle round and round. I have focused on the racial differences between whites and blacks here because they are the most evident and the most relevant to our current political situation. But of course, other racial differences between other groups exist. Racial discourse has seen a bit of a lull, and the current, current thing is more concerned with homosexuality or feminism than with racism. The news cycles ebb and flow. One year they trot out race, the next transsexuality, and then the next it will be back to race. As we speak, USA companies are busy implementing and responding to anti-white racialist initiatives from the 2020 cycle of racial politics. They will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. It's important for us to establish our counter-narrative, to support it as strongly as possible, and to be as truthful as possible in doing so. And maybe you agree with me about all or most of the above. Maybe you don't, but for the sake of argument, you'll concede the point. Now what? What am I proposing? Because if all this is true, then what it means is that a fair society isn't fair. It's not fair if you are concerned with the idea that disparities among racial groups are unfair anyway. And of course, blacks, American blacks, and sub-Saharan African blacks will probably always feel that a fair society is unfair to them. That can be managed in part by not constantly telling them so, by not constantly blaming whites, which is what many whites, and whites, like to tell them for personal gain. There's always profit in defecting against your own social and racial order. And this is a perennial problem of all human civilizations. In a perfect world, we would probably not live in racially integrated societies. But the question of segregation comes up because we do occupy a physical space in America which contains both black and white people. 
and I don't have any exact policy proposals, but I know that before we can even begin to come up with good governance themes, we need to be responding to truth as opposed to pretty lies. Inordinate resources are spent right now pushing blacks into elite colleges, often in cases where they are not qualified to be there. And I will stipulate here that some of them do, but many don't. And this has several deleterious effects upon society. The school itself, not wanting to look bad, will lower its standards of education in order to accommodate its students. So the quality of higher education degrades. The student, who is in a place where he ought not to be, or she in most cases, will feel resentment and alienation at her inability to keep up with her ostensible peers. And as a result of this, underqualified minority students end up gravitating to majors which end in the word studies, black studies, queer studies, and so on. All of these curricula are vehicles for ethnic resentment, lies, and communism. So they degrade us culturally, they degrade our education, and they degrade the students who have this burden of affirmative action thrust upon them. And there is another, subtler, spiritual poison to this as well. You know, if you know, that the scales are tipped in your favor because of your race, then you'll never be able to believe you were good enough for your own accomplishments. You'll always suspect you're a fraud, that things were handed to you out of pity, out of collective guilt, and not on the basis of your own merits. But now look, do you see how corrosive the racial narratives are in our society? I'm trying to make the case to you that egalitarian racial ideology is bad, and even I feel obligated to do so by framing it in terms of the harm it does to the black man rather than the harm it does to the white. And there are many ways that it harms whites, especially white children, who have been chosen to bear the burdens of racial integration even as champagne socialists who are totally insulated from it toast themselves in their supposed moral superiority. Because the default setting in American culture is that blacks are sacred, that whites need to man up and suffer through it, bear the white man's burden, do everything and anything for the sake of the black. And maybe this is the deepest and worst flaw in the white race, but it's not the only one. We can talk about IQ or crime or whatever else, but we need to be honest about the white inclination towards pathological altruism, towards pharisaical martyrdom, towards self-righteous, holier-than-thou, moral cuckoldry. I'm not being facetious here. This isn't to say, oh, my worst flaw is that I work too hard, or some boomer job interview, backhanded self-congratulation. This is a real, pernicious, destructive character flaw in the white race. We don't even want to conceive of ourselves as a race. The slogan that race does not exist isn't some Jewish trick. It's a real, inborn racial flaw in the white character that we're so hell-bent on individualism, hell-bent on self-sacrifice, hell-bent on love of the other, the underdog, the scoundrel, that we are nearly incapable of ever acting in our own interests as a race. That tendency may have helped us survive in certain harsh environments many centuries ago, but in the world we have built, with instant global communication, commodity air travel, international supply chains, it becomes a pure liability. Try to convince whites not to publicly martyr themselves for a cause is actually harder than convincing blacks to stop spending their whole paycheck on new jobs. That's the truth.
Was there some Copernican revolution in racial science? Was there some new Kuhnian paradigm? The answer is, of course not. There was no scientific revolution at that time. But there was a kind of political revolution. There is even a scientific study, which in my opinion almost completely vindicates the account I'm about to give you, a study that everyone has heard of, the Stanford Marshmallow Test. I won't bore you with my meditations on that, but have a Google sometime, because you may have heard that the Marshmallow Test doesn't replicate. It absolutely does. But when it's replicated, they always do things like control for race. In other words, they subtract out the key independent variable and then claim that when you control for race, race does not matter. This is typical of regime scientists. They find what they're told to find. Anyway, a simple story, but I think it's a very powerful one. And you will probably dismiss it when you first hear it. But the power of an idea like this is that once you hear it, it's hard to let it go. It explains things much more clearly than other competing ideas. There is a single evolutionary factor which has driven many of the racial discrepancies we have examined, and it is the environment in which blacks and whites have developed. You will hear some people tell you that evolution occurs at such slow timescales that the human race is relatively unchanged. So there can be no deep and abiding genetic differences between races. But this is incorrect. Please consult Cochrane and Harpending, the 10,000-year explosion, to learn about how evolution is a continuous and ongoing process that is happening even now in the modern day, and how many changes can happen very rapidly. We know that one reason northern peoples, such as whites and Asians, are very light-skinned is because of the climate. There's much less available sunlight in northern climes. And we need exposure to sunlight in order to synthesize vitamin D, and for many other reasons also. So blacks have more melanin, whites have less, so that whites can absorb more sunlight. We know that black Africans are much more likely to have a condition called sickle cell anemia, in which their blood cells have a different shape. This comes with some problems, but it also makes them much more resistant to malaria, which is a problem in equatorial climes. The form of the body can diverge quite rapidly in divergent environments. And the simple distillation of all of the above is, again, evolution does not stop at the neck. In Africa, it's warm all year round. There's a very long growing season and no killing frost. So you don't need any special skills or temporal orientation in order to survive. So exuberant is the productivity of the land that a lone woman can easily grow enough food for herself and her children by growing tubers in shallow dirt, and not by backbreaking exertion either. More on that in a moment. When food is abundant like this, future orientatedness and the ability to plan ahead are not worth their cost in evolutionary terms. So the median African lives in a kind of eternal present. There's no selection pressure for time orientation. The biggest behavioral ROI for a male in Africa is to find ways to be sexually attractive to females and sire more children. Sexual selection becomes primary. As a result, male Africans are not nearly as inclined to invest time and resources in their offspring. 
It's not just a meme or a joke. The black kids don't know their dad. There is a deep geological evolutionary reason for that. A black man who invests in his children is paying a high opportunity cost relative to a delinquent father. Whether you look at sub-Saharan Africa or inner city Detroit or Chicago, the behavior is the same. Just like in Africa, the majority of employment among American blacks is amongst the women. The men strut around, killing each other, and peacocking. In Africa, they can do this with relative impunity. In America, we put them in jail, or at least we used to. It really isn't their fault. They're acting according to instinct. Bantu Africans, specifically, which are one of many African races, in fact, are a lecking species. In classical lek mating, the males of the species all gather together and make visually and auditorially striking displays to compete for the attention of females. We know about lecking from the mating patterns of many birds. In Africa, where environmental pressures are weaker on humans than sexual pressures, the males are highly sexually selected. They swagger around, they spit game, they dance, they adorn themselves in loud and colorful clothing, and they pick pointless fights with each other, in which neither party is particularly injured, as a show of dominance and fitness. Again, you can see that this pattern repeats, both in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as in any nightclub. If you, as a white man, feel that the modality of the nightclub is alienating and uncomfortable to you, it's because whites are not a lecking species, at least not to the same degree as Africans. This is one of the many ways that the Africanization of social norms has harmed the white man. It is part of the reason that we see all these things. Pickup artistry, the red pill, the rational male, the rational faggot, this obsession with rationality, the masculinity crisis, all of these things. In light of this understanding, we can realize that pickup artistry is not about picking up women at all. It's a kind of outsider anthropology of African mating behaviors. One of the main ways we are exposed to this is through music, through African music. You think the way rappers talk about women is based? What is it based on? It is based on the lek. Most white men are not adapted to this. So all of this seduction strategy and evolutionary psychology and game theory is the white man's way of re-territorializing the Africanized American mating jungle. The African does not have to plan for the morrow. Food is always available. He can laze in the sun, some might even say aristocratically, eating the fruit of the land as the women do the work of raising children. In America, with our welfare and our food stamps and our decriminalization of shoplifting, we do all of these things to make the environment in America more hospitable to the African, more like his home. It's no surprise then that this environment stupefies and degrades the European who falls, like any object, to the state of the lowest energy available. Women begin to act like African women. Men begin to act like African men. Those Europeans who have the capacity for African nature are selected for. Those who lack it become anti-natalists, albeit unintentionally in most cases, and they refuse to have children. It takes many generations for this to come to fruition, but this is a likely path for our future. Of course, it's not the only path. The true European spirit 
still persists in most white Americans. We have very different natures from the blacks we have brought here, because we were also shaped by our environment. Whites and North Asians evolved in places that have harsh winters. In Northern Europe, it snows. For half of the year, it is impossible to grow crops. So if you live in a place with desolate winters, the only way to survive is if you can plan ahead and store enough food. This creates an immediate and intense selection pressure for people who have the ability to be patient and live in the future instead of merely the now. And the more you become oriented to the future, the more you also become oriented to the past. You develop a sense of history and of legacy and a vision of your place in the world. In sub-Saharan Africa, the primary tool of agricultural cultivation is the hoe, no pun intended, which a woman can rule as easily as a man. In contrast, the European climate is much more challenging and requires intensive use of the plow, which women are generally not strong enough to operate. Thus in Europe, women were much more dependent upon men for food provisioning, and this creates a strong selection pressure for paternal investment. Now this is a very simplified version of the story, and it is in many ways incomplete. There's a lot you could say to criticize it, and I would probably agree with many of those criticisms. There are other contingencies, besides the mere fact of cold winters and difficult soil that have shaped our racial character. East Asians have also been subjected to harsh winters, and yet they have many different characteristics. But what they have in common is a similar level of intelligence and a relationship to the future, and maybe even a higher level of domestication. But despite its limitations, I think this story has explanatory power. Not too much, but the right amount. And it goes far to explain the disparities between black and white that we see in America today. So I'm not asking you to accept this story as true. I'm just asking you to think about it and notice that the alternative is a series of ever more fantastical epicycles, fairy tales about intergenerational trauma. What can we do with this story? If it's true, then it implies that all the things we are doing to try to improve the state of the African American, and we have done many things, since the 60s especially, from building them houses, relaxing the laws to go softer on their criminality, giving them free food, free health care, free college, preferential admissions, tax credits, remaking our entire education system, not once, but again, and again, and again, every few years, concocting new, fashionable theories about how we just need to get them earlier, get them free kindergarten, free preschool. Soon they'll be trying to educate the black out of them before they even leave the womb. But if the evolutionary story is true, then what it implies is that all of these interventions, in fact, are having a perverse effect. That they are subsidizing the worst tendencies of the African, making him more wild, more violent, more feral, more stupid. And if you want to build a better African, because that was always the goal, always the goal of progressive policies, of these tender-hearted, sappy-eyed liberals, oh, the poor dears, we just need to be more compassionate towards them, give them more money, more food, and so on. The goal, really, no matter how much they protest, is to erase the racial characteristics of the African and make him into the white man. Because all of them, deep down, deep in their hearts, 
superior race to uplift all the other nations of mankind to our heights. And this may be my least hard right opinion on the topic of race. I'm sympathetic to it. If it were just stated honestly and clearly, and with an unashamed racial pride in the excellence of your own blood and your own people. I think this is something that many, even of the seemingly mushiest and most treacly sort of liberals, really do feel. But they're ashamed of it. They believe they have to be ashamed of it. And this shame becomes a source of self-sabotage. But it's also why they can't resist listening to us. Why they are thrilled to hate us. Why there is something salacious in all their little watch lists and catalogs of all the things we say. And the more we stand up in these online spaces and say these things which we know are true, the more that thrill becomes almost irresistible. And this is the nature of seduction. It's not about implanting a desire, but about giving a repressed desire a safe way to manifest itself. In closing, we're going to look at Nietzsche and what he had to say about the shaping of the German spirit. This is from the Genealogy of Morals, which I'm told is the only book by Nietzsche that is still taught in leftist academic programs, which is to say all academic programs. Because if you squint at it just right, they can make you seem to read as a support for the kinds of revolting sexual degeneracy that most college campuses and woke boardrooms now advocate. But it doesn't say anything of the sort. And I claim this book contains, in fact, a racial doctrine which is much more radical than anything you will see in the online right today in the majority of cases. What he does say, and he uses a kind of Darwinian logic, is how the German conscience, that demanding inner voice, which compels the German man to be sensitive, faithful, and above all thoughtful, arises and develops precisely out of its opposite. It is the merciless brutality of the German people over generations, their imposition upon their own people for the deficit of these qualities, their genius for punishment, that has created the German conscience. It was the practice of drawing and quartering, breaking on the wheel, boiling in oil, the flaying of flesh, and carving out the meat of a man's breast. It was through all these things that the German people made pain their demonic. They imposed upon themselves a particular capacity for memory. They developed the ability to keep a promise. Nietzsche has great reverence for this power, the power to bind yourself to your own will continuously. This is a sign of the highest form of life. To be simultaneously a beast of prey, a magnificent blonde brute, and yet to possess a will which can command this animal, not to tame it, but to unleash it at the appropriate time. Reason, seriousness, mastery over the emotions, all these gloomy, dismal things which are called reflection, all these privileges and pageantries of humanity, these things find their foundation in blood and cruelty. The white man has been more cruel to himself than he ever was to any black. So Nietzsche believes, and I believe, that all good things arise out of their opposite. That love and kindness and charity 
find their genesis only in brutality, and a kind of innocent, delighted brutality. It was not out of a desire to uplift himself that the German did this. That uplift was only a byproduct. But one must be careful what he says with relation to these topics. Because Nietzsche also says that our unwitting project of self-domestication has gone too far. That what may have started in uplift has terminated in degeneration. In the complete loss of the aristocratic character of man. That the very essence of civilization is to train out of man the beast of prey, a tame and civilized animal, a domesticated animal. And yet I ask you to consider if the African has ever had such a thing imposed upon him, and whether the true legacy of slavery might be that the white man, owing to his decline, having fallen into a state of over-civilization, of being too tame, of driving from himself every trace of wildness and ferocity, might it not be that the white man failed to finish the job? Somebody say, somebody say, hello, 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 somebody say, somebody cries, why, 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 somebody say, somebody sing, hello, 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 Zero HP Lovecraft is in the room with us right now. He is a known antichrist hater and woman respects maximalist. He believes that love and emotions are chemicals, but hypocrite that he is, he relies on chemicals to tell his emotions are chemicals. But he will not perish like a dog, nor he will fight. <laughs> <laughs> 